Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make Him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. So a lot of exciting stuff that's going on in the world today. We know right now that there's a lot of bad stuff. Um, a lot of stuff that went on with Turkey, with the earthquake. We need to be praying uh, for, for the country. We need to be praying for all the people involved. We know of all the things that are horrific. But there's actually something really good going on right now. For the last 100 hours, 100 hours, so calculate the days, there is revival that broke out at Asbury Seminary. If you know anything about studying revivals, this is not the first revival that has hit Asbury Seminary. It's actually the second one. And we as a church have been praying for this since even before the plant was the plant. And my prayer is, is every single Sunday that we show up, I show up like the Super Bowl, but rather we're going to war because revival will hit in God's perfect timing, in God's perfect way, in God's perfect plan. But I always tell my, my team here that we're, we're watchers and waiters. We're literally like surfers. Surfers know the ocean just by looking at it. Surfers, when they get in the water and they're sitting on their surfboard and they're feeling the current, they know which wave to ride. I think we need to be ready to be watching and waiting that the Spirit of God is going to move. And are we wanting the Spirit of God to move? And are we preparing ourselves for God to move? Are we on the waters of what God is up to next? Or are we sleeping inside, missing the waves that are coming? Okay? Someone is talking parables like Jesus, right? Must be in the Bible a lot lately. So I want us to get excited that God is up to something really beautiful. We are in a study of Mark. We are not exegeting the book, meaning taking it verse by verse, passage by passage. We've done that in the past. But as I've shared, what we are doing is we have many series that are going throughout now until the end of June. Our first was we talked about discipleship. And I loved how so many of you just kind of like took to it, like bingo, 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 things popping, God's doing stuff. The whole idea of a Kairos moment, right? I said, what's a Kairos moment? In the last words, I said, it's an aha moment, that God shows up. But it's a God moment, not because he shows up, but because we respond to it, right? God can do everything around us, but if we're not responding, we're missing why he's given us moments, so let me ask you, now be awake, Super Bowl's coming, metanoia. What does metanoia mean? You can say it out loud. Oh, wow, some of you are listening. Thank you, Jesus, it's working. Right? Change of mind. A change of heart. Metanoia, repent. Change your heart and believe, which means to act on it. And I love the text messages the emails, that things are just popping, 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 popping. Lives are being touched. Lives are being transformed. We as a church are on the move and the best is yet to come. So when we looked at Mark, we said the first thing we got to tackle is learning to follow Jesus. But then when you look at Mark, just like all the other gospels, you start seeing this, this kind of like battle beginning. This war that's underway between Jesus and not the world, but the religious leaders. You ever know that the people that give you the most problems are sometimes Christians? Do I get a uh-huh? 
right? Do I get a little Jersey amen? Uh-huh, right? But, but those are the ones that were attacking Jesus. And so when we really, really said, what do we do about this? Let's talk about true religion. True religion. Because when we think about religiosity, we think about a sociological term which, which deals with religious beliefs and experiences. When we think about religion, if I were to ask you, do you think about religion as positive or negative? Just say it out loud. How many of you think negative? How many? Okay, some people are lying in here. How many, how many positive? How many positive, right? Okay, good, good. That means we're doing a good job for the young people, that they're getting a good example, right? But when most people think about religion, they don't think about it in the neutral. It's either positive or negative, and for most, it's in the negative. And so, one of the things that we really miss out what does Jesus talk about when he talks about true religion? What's true religion? Because when Jesus came to earth, there was a conflict of religious understanding and religious practices. And so as a church, if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, we need to understand the religion, what true religion is so that we can live in alignment with Jesus, where our minds are changing, our actions are moving forward, and we are allowing God to have moments throughout our day. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I ask you for just a really sweet time this morning. I ask you for a really sweet time. I ask you that you would allow your word to be a lamp unto our feet, cold water to our soul. I ask you that, Jesus, that, that your passage would speak through me in a way that, that brings freedom to someone today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 2, otherwise it's going to be behind me. And this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so right away what we see is, is that Jesus is being attacked from the onset. Matter of fact, the first time he stood up in the synagogue, he was attacked. They actually wanted to stone him. They took him outside to stone him, and he kind of, kind of like snuck through the cloud, crowd. He put like an Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? He did like a Jedi mind trick, and he just kind of walked through the crowd. How cool is this? But now it's a little bit later on, but it's still very early in his ministry. And listen to this. Whenever Jesus teaches, he would use parables, earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. So let's see what happens. Once... When John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? And Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast with, while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Second one, besides... Who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. So let's talk about the setting. 
What I find so fascinating and interesting about this passage compared to many of the confrontations that the Pharisees had with Jesus is that John's disciples went to Jesus with the Pharisees. Oftentimes what we see is the Pharisees pulling Jesus' disciples away from Jesus and having conversations on the side to bring confusion amongst the disciples to go to Jesus to have to answer their questions. But instead, in fairness, there was real misunderstanding to what was happening. Now, why do I say that? Because when you look at the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, all four in a row, You see that what John does right away is he says, hey, my disciples, there's the Lamb of God. Go with him, hang out with him, and do the things that he does, right? And now, John's disciples, they're confused because they've actually believed that that there was a, a, a sticking point, a dilemma, And the dilemma had to do with fasting. So let's talk about fasting. When you talk about biblical fasting, you need to look at the first five books called the Pentateuch. Everybody say Pentateuch, right? I want to teach you guys some stuff while you come to church. Like, you know, all these different things. Metanoia, Kairos. That was kind of like with an Italian accent. I'm not Italian, right? But the Pentateuch. So when you really study the Pentateuch, there's only one day of fasting. It's the Day of Atonement found in Leviticus, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? First five books. That's the only day of fasting. Now, when you look all throughout the Old Testament, you see Daniel and you see all these individuals that were fasting for other reasons. Repentance and positioning themselves to hear from God or even for their nation to be saved. But there was one day that everybody was supposed to fast, the Day of Atonement. So, was today the Day of Atonement? No, it wasn't. It was either a Monday or Thursday. Because what the Pharisees did was they fasted twice a week. Say Mishnah. Mishnah. Say it again, Mishnah. Mishnah. Right? Pentateuch and Mishnah. The You could say too, right? Pentateuch and Mishnah. You got to put a little ha, right? So when you look at all the other teachings and regulations, they came from like the book of the Mishnah, where there were added regulations and rules that were happening that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Zealots all were putting on the people. On top of that, if you were a religious leader like Jesus, it was your role and responsibility to set yourself up to fast two times a week plus the Day of Atonement. So 52 times two is, and I learned this in the last service, 104, because I'm not good with math. So 104, okay, plus one makes it 104 plus one, 105, right? So... 105 times the Pharisees would force themselves to fast. When actually scripture, God's word said, day of atonement, that's mandatory. And every other fast was really a prompting by God in preparation for what God was doing in someone's life or what God had next. 
And so there's this real big place of tension because the real problem was, is like John's disciples were like, John is telling us, you're the Messiah, you're the son of God. And yet for some reason, you are not behaving like a really good, holy, religious leader. Think about that. It's so funny when people come to the plant, they're like, wow, you don't wear a suit. I don't think we've ever even seen you in a blazer. I have now, I actually have now two blazers. I have two blazers in my whole wardrobe. And you don't, well, one, you want to see me in a blazer because weddings, but there's other times you don't want to see me in a blazer because you know what it is, right? A funeral, right? I actually just got a really cool blazer that I'll wear one Sunday, but not yet. But, but I purposely know that the way that I grew up was every Sunday morning, you wear your best. Sunday's best, right? That's tradition. I know it's such a small thing, but for some people, they have a hard time, right? I don't know how seriously I can take you. I don't really know if you understand what you're doing. And there are traditions, and that's just a a minor one, and I'll get to some major ones in the future that, that literally throw people off. Because what we do is we are actually more traditional than we are biblical. Do I get an amen? Amen. Do I get an uh uh-huh? And so here's what Jesus does. He attacks the heart of legalism. He attacks the rigid laws and regulations that we put on ourselves that are not biblical that actually cause us to be pushed away from God rather than be drawn to God. Do you know that? That's the danger. So, let's do some storytelling. Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So, how many of you have ever gone to a wedding and were fasting during a wedding party? Anyone? Anyone, raise your hand. We have. It was the worst day of our life. And by three quarters of the way through, I was at the sushi bar and then the ice cream bar, and I went home and said, what did I just do? Because there was something sitting right here. So what Jesus is saying, and I'm going to simplify this, every fast you've ever done, the day of atonement, repentance, preparation, For whatever reason you have ever fasted for, even you're saying those two times a week that you are fasting, the 105 times you are fasting, you are fasting for me to come. You are fasting for the groom to be present. And so Jesus uses the really simple illustration that when you go to a wedding, you celebrate, Uh uh-huh, right? You go to a wedding and you party. Do I get an uh uh-huh? Do you go to a wedding and have the greatest time celebrating the couple that have decided to give their lives for one another? Do I get an amen? Amen. For me, I love weddings. I drive my wife crazy at weddings because we have to be the first one on the floor and we have to be the last one off the floor, right? Right? Last dance, right? That's like every wedding song, last song. Like we're there, she's dying, I'm sweating. It's the greatest day ever, right? 
So we go to weddings to celebrate. We go to celebrate the one for the reason we go to the wedding for. And Jesus is saying, I am the reason for the wedding. And yet you miss that the celebration person is standing right in front of you. And how true that is, is that when God is up to some huge purpose in our lives, we allow things to blind us from seeing a deep work because it doesn't fit our box. The reason we fast is to put ourselves in a place of preparation to heighten our ability to see and hear the presence of God who's working in our lives because of outside sources that is kind of constricting his work. And we're saying we're pushing these away so that we can open our hearts so that God can speak to us. I hope during our last fast, even though it was a digital fast, that God spoke clearly to you. I'll say this. God didn't say anything during that fast until the day before the fast ended. And then on Monday, Tuesday, and then again, one other day, God started showing me things that I can't believe fasting from the digital world. God, I made space for God to work. I mean, deep healing stuff. Like your pastor over the last week and a half has been going through like deep, deep stuff which is beautiful. And the only reason we fast is not to look holy, but rather position ourselves so that our hearts can be heightened to what God is up to and push away the things. And Jesus is saying, you missed it. Jesus wasn't anti-fasting. He believed in fasting for the very purpose so people would be willing and ready for God to speak. And he said, the bridegroom will be taken. It was prophesied to. He will be taken. And then he'll come back again in the future. And there will be a season for fasting again. But now, put on your dancing shoes. Let's go party. And everywhere Jesus went was a party. But even in the midst of partying, Jesus also fasted he wanted to know the deeper things of God to be revealed to him for what was next. It wasn't the day of atonement. Otherwise, everyone would have been fasting, including Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. Everything in the Old Testament, Jesus believes. Amen? He is the God of the old and he's the God of the new. And I love what my mentor says. He is the God of the first testament and the second testament as well. It's not an old, it ain't a new. It's a one and a two. And that totally rhymed. <laughs> so, second, he says, besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. Any Gen Xers out there, give me a woo-woo. There we go. Thank you, Bill. You're the only other Gen Xer in the whole building. I appreciate you supporting my cause, okay? Because I know Joe Colangelo is an Xer too, okay? So back in the day, patching clothes was cool, right? 
You'd buy new jeans, you would rip them, and you'd put a new patch in there. You'd go to Ramsey in Interstate, and they had the place where they had all the clothing stuff, and, and people would patch their clothes. And your parents would be like, what'd you do? You just ruined them. You're like, I'm in high school. I can do whatever I want. Did I just say that? Yes, I did. So, so oftentimes, it's more of a fashion statement. But you go back to 60s and 50s, this was a way of life. It was an ancient practice. If you ripped your jeans, you had to find an old pair of jeans, cut it out, and put it on so that it was gone. Because new cloth has elasticity. And so if you put a new patch that just fit right over that hole, it would make the hole even bigger. And Jesus was saying, your traditions that you've created cannot contain me. Amen? Right? Your traditions that you created, not that God created, cannot contain me. Because Jesus was a rabbi. He knew the Pentateuch. He knew the Torah. He practiced just like every other person. He went to synagogue regularly. He did healings in synagogues. His first healing was at a service. But he didn't play around with man-made tradition. And we as a church, like every other church, need to be careful what is biblical and what is traditional. Think about this. A couple weeks ago, I was talking about Jack. I don't know if Jack, Jack's here or not. I said, what would happen if college-age Jack went to a funeral and laid his hand on a casket and that dude was risen from the grave? What would you all do? Run. Do I get an uh-huh? Right? But yet, we see that's what Jesus did. Jesus would show up to like funeral processions and he would just like walk up to them, carrying them, lay his hands on them, and the person was brought back to life. We say that's a New Testament phenomena, a Second Testament phenomena. No. You want to get weird and freaky in Scripture? You go back to the prophet. A little boy dies. He closes the door. He lays on top of him and breathes down his throat. That's weird. That's weird. And the boy comes back to life. Jesus said that happened once. The supernatural is a norm. Well, that doesn't fit into our traditions. I remember one time we were doing a healing service at a different church that I worked at. And I said, hey, listen, let's, let's anoint everyone with oil because all the elders were up front. And one of the elders got so mad at me. He said, we're not doing it. I said, why not? He says, because we're not. That's a you thing. I said, that's a biblical thing. I said, you go read the epistles and see what they say. He said, well, well, we don't want to make this about you. I said, I'm not even the lead pastor. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And he said, not this time. Tradition won out. Today, we are starting to go back to doing communion every single week. Do I get an amen? amen. Why? Because tra tradition says we do it once a month. The Bible says every single time you meet. But yet we are afraid to be like them. 
whoever them are. Seriously, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. Who are the them? And he says, you are missing the point. Are you willing to be biblical? Are you willing to look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament and see that God was just doing a new thing? And the new thing was is that he was silent for 400 years. And the new thing he was doing was better. Do you have space in your life that you are allowed to see the work of God be displayed within you? Or have you created this box out of protection and out of background and out of whatever type of religion you've come from that God only works in this way? What point are we allowed to say we got to take our little own Pandora's box and have them shattered so that God can do his best work in us? So God can do his best work in us. I had a beautiful day on Friday. I got to have lunch with one of my kids. And as parents, we always ask our kids a thousand questions. How you doing? What's going on at school? How's work going? Making enough money? Getting everything paid? You paying your bills? Doing this? Doing that? How's your girlfriend? Everything going well? Getting married? Not getting married? And all, and all they hear is, all they hear is, wah, 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 right? Peanuts, right? Right? Gen Xer. But there are times that I want my kids to know that not only do I hear them, but do they hear me? And I asked one of my kids, I said, what do you see, what do you see in my life? What's next? What's next? And we talked about what he sees that God's doing in, in our life. And I said, well, what about the plant? What do you think God's doing in the plant? So that's a big one. Now I'm paraphrasing that word for word. He said, if people come to the plant from all different churches for all the wrong reasons, you'll leave. That's what my son said. He said, you're not going to be able to put up with those people because everyone's going to have an agenda. I said, okay. He said, but if people come with the right attitude and the right heart, I don't know what's going to happen. And so as a parent, I'm like, let's lean into that a little bit more. <laughs> Tell me what I want to hear. <laughs> Appease my ego. Right? Let's just call it what it is. And, and I loved how true that is. If we truly are looking for the Spirit of God to do something that will surprise us, each one of us has to come and put aside our old traditions. Say, Jesus, what is biblical and what are you doing? And am I willing to lean into it at any given point? We are having fights in our own little Christian world over things that are not biblical. Because if we were biblical, we would be healing all the time. Do I get an uh-huh? Uh-huh. You want me to really freak you out? If we were really being biblical, we would have people speaking in tongues on a regular basis. Got a little quiet right there. Because that's what Paul talks about. That there's an edification of a holy language that you know that's coming from the divine to humanity and being spoken from one to another to the people of God. 
pretty powerful. And yet, in our proper little boxes, we miss out for the Spirit of God to do what is best for his people. What is best for his people. Legalism involves abstracting the law of God from its original context. Legalism is where one is concerned merely with the keeping of God's law as an end to itself. Legalism adds our own rules to God's law and treats them as the divine. So I, at times I'll have Megan or, or, or Sue read over my sermon. And in my notes, there was a little talking, a little talking point about how religion can drive us crazy. And I'm going to paraphrase this because I don't want to offend anyone. I want to actually be transparent. If you struggle with OCD, religion will kill you. If you struggle with anxiety, religion will destroy you. And she's like, I probably wouldn't say that. I've struggled with OCD. When I was a little boy, I used to have to tap things four times. Anyone ever there? Don't raise your hands. It's okay. <laughs> Same team. I see you. And I had some major, major OCD. I mean, there was times that people, no one knew I struggled with it. But it would take me forever to walk down the stairs, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I'm like, I'm going crazy. And the Spirit of God has been healing me. How cool is that? And it's true that these man-made stuff Puts us in such bondage, anxious, OCD, ADD. Anyone who struggles with this stuff, church is not really a safe place. I think many people that come here is because I've made it safe by sharing my junk with you. I didn't know Pastor Rob struggled with the OCD. I did. I did. Ask Sue. Early years in marriage. It's been a battle. But yet God heals God heals. God heals physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, and even financially. How do I know? Because he's done every single one in our life. As we position ourselves to live biblically and not allow tradition to mess up the work that God has in store for us. So, what's the point of all this? He gives one more illustration. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. I got a buddy in here right now, uh, a guy who started, was part of the starting of the plant team. Love them. The couple's an amazing couple. They're good Italian people. How many of you love good Italians, right? Hey, you love a good Italian, right? I don't know why I tried the accent. It doesn't work. It sounds probably stupid. But he's a winemaker. And I'm not a connoisseur of wine. I can't even say that I really enjoy wine. I know some of you love wine, and wine is part of your, your, your ritual, your rhythms of every single day. But for this guy, his wine was more than just a hobby. It's a rhythm of his life. It's a season of his calendar. 
And I remember like really talking to him about like, how do you do this? How do you make it? And honestly, making wine back then is not very different than making wine right now. So for all you wine drinkers, how good does that look to drink wine out of that? If you don't like wine, that's a reason why. What do I mean? In biblical times, they would take lamb skins, right, or goats. They would slaughter the goat, get all the meat out, put it all aside, and they would take the skin because of its elasticity, because it was brand new, dead lamb, dead goat. All you wine drinkers out there, remember what I'm saying right now. The next time you pick up a bottle of Chardonnay, whatever it is, I don't know, whatever it is, right? I don't know, what, Marlowe, I don't know, whatever. So anyways... But, but think about this. You're Marlowe, right? Marlowe, Marlowe. And you didn't know what you were coming for, right? All I remember is Reuniti boxed wine, which is now a big thing. All you boxed wine people out there, it happened in the 80s. Anywho, let's get back on track. So what they would do is they would pour the wine into the wine skin because of, it, of its elasticity. And they would do the stomping on the grapes and the running around the thing and they would pour the grape juice. And over time, the gases is what caused the fermentation. And it would expand and it would expand and it would expand. Let's put up a better picture of it because that's pretty nauseating, right? <laughs> this is like an organic wine box, right? So it's one of those things where, where, where it looks so nice and pretty. But what Jesus says is you can't rush the process. You can't take an old wineskin that has zero elasticity and pour new wine in it. Otherwise, like the patch, it's going to tear apart and burst. And so for wine to be wine, and remember, they drank wine basically at every meal. There was not a drinking age because the water was so bad. Someone just said, amen. Did someone just say, Pat just said, amen, right? So, so welcome to the plant. So it's one of those things that if you put new wine in, it would, it would explode. It wouldn't work. How true this is, that we try to take what we expect God to do with something we've never experienced before and try to make it fit in our box. There's nowhere in the gospel or even in the epistles or even in the Old Testament that 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 is anywhere clarity of how God works. Let's go back to the prophet, Ezekiel. It says here, Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Right? Metanoia, change of heart, positioning yourself so that you can hear who God is, know who you are, and walk in the regulations that he has for you, which are perfect and best. Perfect and best. And so what the prophet is saying is that there's one who's going to come, and he's going to give you a new heart. And that new heart is like a wineskin. That old, stubborn, 
stony, unresponsive heart will supernaturally be ripped out of you. And he will give you a new heart, a wineskin, that is now responsive and has elasticity in it. Because when God starts working in your life, it's like grape juice turning into wine. Starts bubbling up. Starts stretching you in areas that you do not want to be stretched in. And yet, it is the best thing for you and everybody else around. Amen? That pulling, that pushing, that getting spiritually gassy is a good thing. It's a good thing. Because he who is working in you is willing it for his good pleasure. Which means the very reason he created you is that you're living in it. My dream My greatest dream is that when I am at my sweetest, I go see Jesus. And that I'm at that sweetest spot that I get to go to be heaven, go to go to go go to heaven and be the greatest glass of wine that Jesus has tasted in a long time. I want to end strong. I want all that, that, that build up and that elasticity to keep growing and ready to go. That, that, when, that when Jesus, the great wine taster, pours my life into his cup, he says, well done. This is good. And Jesus says, Your heart is the wineskin. My spirit is the wine. Paul says, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Tradition makes you morally okay. The Spirit of God makes you biblically holy His. I want to be holy His. I want me to be W-H-O-L-L-Y and that my life is a reflection of what God did, not only on the cross, but through the tomb. And Jesus says, this is for all of you. This ain't for Pastor Rob. He ain't no Ezekiel. He ain't no Elijah. He is one of you who is saying, if we give our hearts and we trade them for the stony, for the real, he'll pour into us this beautiful grape juice that will turn into this magnificent wine. See, that's what true religion is. It's aligning your heart with the things of God. And what I mean by the things of God, that you would be the person who God created you, not just to be, but to become. That's true religion.
We have to be the people of God who truly don't want to hide in the corner and hide in fear, but who stand right in the place that God has them so that he can do his best work. Let me give you three quick takeaways. One, and if you walk through the parables, this is how they build up. It's all about the bridegroom. In other words, this. It's all about Jesus and Jesus only. Amen? This church is built on Jesus and Jesus only. And the day that we get wayward from Jesus and Jesus only, it must be time for someone else to come in and point you better to Christ. Jesus and Jesus only. We talk about Jesus every single week. When we started the plant, we actually had a person say, you talk way too much about Jesus. And he was part of our plant team. He says, come on, we got to go to the Old Testament. I'm like, he's got about two more weeks and he's out. <laughs> he was out. Because what did I say? Jesus and Jesus only. Traditional is being, tradition is helpful, yet it's not biblical. Tradition is helpful, but it's not Biblical. There are some really good church traditions. And we, have the plan, as a plant, we're already creating traditions, right? We fast the beginning of the year to prep our hearts for what God's doing next. But it's not biblical. The reason we do that is so that we can train you that when you're going through a tough time, like Daniel did in Scripture, you are equipped to know that I need to go into a season of fasting because there are seasons of fasting in the New Testament and Old Testament that's preparation for whatever God is up to next. Biblical always wins out. Biblical always wins out. And the way we know that it's biblical is because it's the Word of God and the Spirit of God working together to bring clarity that we see from beginning to end. We don't steal a verse to make it fit our own. We study a verse through the lens of all the scripture and see how it all aligns up with the divine. Amen? So, traditions are good, but it doesn't mean they're biblical. Or else, we'd be seeing a lot of other stuff going. And I'll be honest with you, plant family, I'm ready for the lot of other stuff. I'm ready for our church to go through 100 hours of worship. Soon I have a little getaway planned. And I told her driving here, I said, hey, revival hits, we're home. And she's like, uh-huh, we're home. Because when revival hits, lives are being changed. And revival is happening in human hearts all around us. But collectively, when this baby comes, be ready. We're surfing the maverick of heaven. And lastly, and most importantly, the human heart is Jesus' number one priority. That's it. That's it. You need to pray that Jesus invades your heart, that Jesus takes over your heart, that everything in you is aligned with your heart because your heart is where our, emotion, our emotions, our intellect, and our will all rest. You want to give Jesus your heart? It's not this happy little place. It's this place that's centered around our wills, our emotions, and our intellect. That's our heart. Study scripture. 
The heart is the most intricate place of humanity. And that's all he cares about. Is the most intricate places of your life. Jesus loves me, this I know. For my Bible tells me so. Do you know that? That he loves you so much, he's going after your heart. And he was going after John's disciples' hearts. And he was going after the Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots' hearts. And he's going after the world's hearts. Amen? I don't want you to lose your religion. I want you to walk in what true religion actually is. And it's having faith in Christ and Christ alone. Amen? Amen. I hope this was refreshing for you. Because studying this passage was just so refreshing for me. I want to invite the band to come up. And we're going to lean into worship. But what we are going to do is we are going to take communion together. Because this is what the Bible says. The Bible says every time you gather, eat and drink. They are in the seats in front of you. So everybody look down. There's little cup holders, right? Little lesson and offering and getting communion today, right? And every Sunday they will be there. So pick it up. And let's open the bread. Jesus came to lay down his life for us. He came to break tradition so that our hearts would be like new wineskins. If you need a new heart and you need a new wineskin, let's eat together. I love how Jesus always talks about the Spirit like it talked about in the Old Testament, like wine. New wine, new power. If you are saying, Jesus, I need your new wine. I need your new wine. He says, this is the new covenant. The new wine given for you. Let's drink together. Let's allow this song of worship be a positioning of our hearts. Tonight, you're going to be cheering for a team that you probably normally don't even root for. Let's be honest. How many Chief fans are really in this room? Two, maybe three. Eagles fans, none of you like the Eagles. Maybe one. Maybe one. There's one. There's one. And the other one is my son-in-law who lives all the way across the world. You're going to be cheering. Great. Cheering is actually an act of worship. May we lean into this act of worship right now in a way that all of me for all of you. All of me for all of you. All of me for all of you. Amen? Let's worship. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.